The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orland, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all to our fourth Leaders Speak, which is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Today, I am truly honored to be joined by two former secretaries of state. Dr. Kissinger was national security advisor and secretary of state in the Nixon and Ford administrations and was instrumental in the reestablishment of relations with China. He has spent 45 years helping leaders on both sides navigate this important bilateral relationship. Today is the 20th anniversary of Secretary Albright's nomination to be Secretary of State under President Clinton. Having served four years as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., she became the first woman to serve as Secretary of State and at that time, the highest-ranking woman ever in the United States government. Secretary Albright played a leading role in the negotiation for China's accession to the WTO and represented the United States at the 1997 transfer of sovereignty over Hong Kong. We've been fortunate to have Secretary Albright serve on the board of directors of the National Committee for seven years. And let me start with the question for Secretary Kissinger. Can I just interrupt? <coughs> yes, you may. How happy I am to be here with you and with my good friend, Henry Kissinger. <coughs> he, what you mentioned that today, was the 20th anniversary. Well, Dr. Kissinger was the first person to call me when I was named Secretary of State. And he said, Madeline, congratulations, you'll do great in the job, but you have taken away my one unique characteristic of being an immigrant Secretary of State. And I said, no, Henry, I don't have an accent. <laughs> So we'll even go back further than that, to 1971. And there had been no contact at that point between the United States and China for 22 years. What kind of made you go to China? What did you seek to accomplish? And what lessons from that visit can we apply to today's US-China relationship? And I know that you would write a book on that. You probably have written a book on You have written a book on this, but we'll try to keep this to five minutes. Well, first, let me say that Madeline and I, though in differing parties, have been close friends and have never looked at these policies yeah. as partisan policies. And one of the strong elements of U.S.-China relations is that a succession of American presidents and Chinese leaders have followed a fundamentally similar course. That is a great achievement. Now, in 1971, well, what made me go was, of course, that President Nixon asked me to go. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> We had entered office with the attitude that we would want to improve relations with China 
specifically that we would try to bring China into the international system because to think of an international order without China was a contradiction of history. But each country had its own set of problems. We had the Vietnam War, China had the Cultural Revolution, so it was it took a while to establish contact. It took about three years to establish contact in very complicated ways. Uh, and uh, one of the major decisions that were made was that there were constant clashes between the Chinese and the Soviets at the Chinese-Russian border. And we looked at a map and we came to the conclusion that Russia probably was the attacker in most of these circumstances. And so we had the problem of deciding if these two countries get into conflict, where should the United States be? And very early, even before we had been in China, we decided that it was not in the American interest for China to be defeated in such a conflict. And so out of this grew a series of uh, moves which culminated in 1971 in uh, my visit to China. And in my first meeting with Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, I, I, had, I was reading a statement to him and I said, so now here we are in this, to us, mysterious country. And Zhou Enlai put up his hand and said, may I interrupt you for a moment? What is so mysterious about China? And I said something, I forget what it was. And he said, think about it. There are 800 million of us, and we are not mysterious to each other. So maybe, and the lesson was that we ought to learn of each other's thinking and motivations. And I think this was an advice that it was important to take and which is still valid today. That more understanding, <coughs> understanding their motivations and their understanding ours. Fair enough. I think the Chinese cultural background is different from ours. And therefore, the way it is important to understand the way China looks at problems. Secretary Albright, similar question. Obviously, you were Secretary of State just as China was joining the WTO. Uh, talk about the relationship at that time and kind of what lessons you learned from that experience that are applicable today. Well, I also, let me just say, I was in the Carter administration uh, working for Dr. Brzezinski and the National Security Council. So I was there for the normalization and uh, watched what had, in fact, been a, a very 
uh, organized way to follow up on what Dr. Kissinger had done um, and uh, proceed with normalizing the relationship. And <clears throat> I was sitting outside <clears throat> the Situation Room and constantly seeing different people going in, and then all of a sudden this wonderful uh, moment came <clears throat> with the normalization and Deng Xiaoping <clears throat> excuse me, coming to the United States. Um, I think that what was very important was we were determined to kind of pursue the story of bringing China into the system. I think that was a very important part. When I was at the United Nations, um, I uh, sat there with my uh, Chinese counterpart, Li Xiaojing. Part of the issue was that we could never get the Chinese to participate in discussions um, unless it had something to do with interference in internal affairs. So you see the same people all the time. We got to be very good friends. So I finally <coughs> gave him a little blue ball so he could practice getting strong and uh, putting his hand <laughs> up in order to be part of the discussions. Uh, and uh, then I established a very good relationship with Foreign Minister Chen Chi Chen in terms of talking about more than just um, our talking points always, wanted to have a strategic discussion. So I do think that one of the issues that was so important was how to bring China into a normal trading relationship. The Clinton administration had worked very hard on that by having permanent uh, PNTR, really, because whenever we were doing the renewal of the MF on the uh, MFN, was basically pulling up the plant to see if it was growing. Um, and a great source of irritation. So the first step was to do the PNTR and bring them into uh, a normal system. And then bringing them into the WTO was part of really this idea of putting them into the international system. Uh, one, we thought it was fair. And two, frankly, it made it possible for some of the rules of trade to be enforced internationally, not just in a bilateral way. So I think it, it's all part of the same story of trying to make sure that China uh, was respected and was a part of a functioning international system. And that, I think, certainly was the uh, view that um, President Carter had, President Clinton had, President Obama has had. And I think it's something that we have to consider, that they are uh, the number two economy, and they need to be part of a functioning international system. Did it work? Did China's accession to the, to the WTA, WTO work for America? I think mostly, though there are questions, I think. Uh, partially, the thing that I always found so interesting about China, uh, by the way, any of us that have all dealt together, we know any diplomat has a set of phrases um, that uh, they uh, that we have. The Chinese do. It's a consistent and principled position. Everything was a consistent and principled position. Uh, and but the bottom line is that I think that there were times that there were issues. They also want to be seen as the world's largest developing country. It's a little hard to be the number two economy in the world and still talk about being the largest developing country. So those have been a little bit of the, the arguments. And then there have been specific cases, obviously. Dr. Kissinger, do you think accession to the WTO by China worked for America? Yes, I, yes, I do. Uh, I think the fundamental 
issue has been to see whether China and the United States could pursue parallel objectives. Uh, it was never going to happen that we would have identical views on all issues. The problem has <coughs> been whether, uh, whether we could, uh, as I said, achieve parallel objectives. Now, are there situations in which the Chinese had got the better of some negotiation? Undoubtedly. And it may even equally be true the other way. But having China as part of the international economic system, it's better than having a trade war between the United States and China. Within that general proposition, I would hope that improvements can be found and improvements should be found. And maybe even systemic discussions could be held. But uh, the fundamental objective, uh, which was to treat China as a member of the international system, was very crucial. When we first opened to China, uh, Chairman Mao did not really want economic relations with any foreign country. In 1976, the trade between China and the United States was less than the trade between the United States and Honduras. So uh, one has to see this within the context of a rapidly um, expanding, almost exploding economic uh, relationship. And uh, there, there's room for improvement, but it was a good thing that these decisions were made. I will come back to that in a moment, but I think because we're sitting at one world trade, you know, where we're the, the epicenter of, of the 9-11 tragedy, and I think we're actually today kind of celebrating the rebirth of this area. I mean, that we can come here and hold this event is really, I think, is terrific. What's the role of fighting terrorism in the U.S.-China relationship? What is it and what should it be? Well, I uh, think we clearly are um, threatened by terrorism in a number of different ways. And we have similar issues in terms of uh, that they're those who feel that there's something about what we're doing that is wrong. What I think the role is, frankly, to share information. The question is that we have more and more today, what is information and how is it gathered? But I do think that there are ways we can cooperate. And while we don't think of piracy so much as terrorism, there uh, have been a lot, there has been cooperation on that. The Chinese have been very helpful on that. They also um, have been very helpful in terms, for me, the issue of terrorism is not how you deal with the end, but how do you prevent it in the first place? And I think that those are the issues that we can work on together, trying to figure out what the roots of it are. And then also, you may think this is kind of pushing it, but I think the fact that the Chinese are now participants in UN peacekeeping operations 
also helps in terms of looking at areas because we, I think, on the issue of stability generally. So I do think that there is help while the only problem, frankly, is that we might define certain groups uh, that we think are terrorists, they don't think so, and people that they think are terrorists, we don't think so. But they are not the only country that we have some disagreements uh, with on that. But I do think, ultimately, the whatever the right word is, the civilized countries of the world have to figure out how to share information and try to rid ourselves of it. Dr. Kissinger. Well, there are various levels of terrorism. There are terrorist attacks within countries, and, uh, and there are terrorist attacks that are based on an attack on the whole international system. Now, uh, the underlying tendency of terrorism has been to destroy the state system and to create a universal caliphate to which all believers would then be subjected. Uh, that is the, that has been the manifestation that we have been most exposed to. Now, the Chinese do not have the same sort of issues uh, that we have had in, uh, in some of the countries, although there are parts of China where that issue has been uh, uh, very important. Uh, so we in China have at least two common objectives. One, to prevent the spread of terrorism around the world uh, uh, in, within various countries. And secondly, to try to create an international system which makes it more and more difficult for terrorists. Particularly, do we have a common interest in preventing terrorists from acquiring uh, geographic terri territory so that they can link their activities with acting like sovereign states. This is where the ISIS problem is very important. And why evolution of some parts of Afghanistan uh, can be of grave consequence for China. Uh, so, and uh, Madeline mentioned the issue of pirates. Uh, so in terms of the general objectives, we in China have parallel objectives. How to apply them in specific circumstances, uh, that's a subject that has to be explored and, and discussed. Uh, and I think there have has been considerable progress made in recent years in those discussions. Is there any evidence and would it make any sense for China to work with North Korea and Iran to support ISIS? Do we have any evidence that that's the case? Have you ever heard of anything like this? What? That, that China working with North Korea and Iran to support ISIS? 
inconceivable to me. That, that, that's, that's what I thought also. And I don't believe that I've Iran never seen the slightest ISIS. evidence of this. Yeah. I'm sorry? Iran yeah. actually does not support ISIS. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> Do you? Yeah. In, in the world of, yeah. of fake news, yeah. this, was, yeah. this, is, this is being, this is being um, talked about. Um, the elephant in the room, Secretary Kissinger, what did President Xi say to you on Friday? What message, what message did you convey to him and what message did he convey to us? And it's a secret. Only those of us in the room and those watching on TV will know. Well, I had all of this written down in a, in a complete memo and I was going to read from it, but the security people took it from me. <laughs> when I came in. Okay, I obviously, uh, my general view has been frequently published. Uh, the, we, the United States and China are the two countries that, whose tensions could spread around the whole world whose conflicts would make many solutions very difficult and whose cooperation is needed for peace. So it is important for the United States and China to be transparent with each other about their objectives and about their general strategy uh, in the world. Uh, we are both major countries and we are both to step on each other's toes because of the magnitude of our efforts. But we must not permit a situation to arise like the one that led to the First World War in which an accumulation of irritations finally led to a crisis that was no different from many crises that had been solved and one day they couldn't manage it. So the United States and China have to try to design a way by which they can cooperate and by, uh, and, and by which uh, they can work for common objectives. Uh, fundamentally, there has been significant progress made in every administration. And whenever a new administration comes in, there is the concern that maybe it will take a different course. Uh, if Madeleine forgives me, in the early Clinton administration, uh, President Clinton tried to deviate from the established pattern, but within two years he realized that the established pattern was based on our common interests. And he became one of the strongest supporters of this way of looking at international relations. <clears throat> so uh, that's the spirit in which I have talked to every Chinese uh, president. I'm sure that Madeleine has followed similar approaches, then there are always specific issues that require special attention. But I believe this is needed 
now at the beginning of a new administration, and I'm hopeful that it will develop. Well, let me just say, um, I have told Chinese friends not to pay attention to things that candidates say about them. Um, President, uh, Governor Clinton had said the butchers of Beijing, um, but once he was president-elect, um, I think he took a different uh, approach or didn't speak about it very much. I do think that um, the Chinese have probably gotten used to some of the things that our elected officials have said. But um, I am concerned about what has just happened um, because it, in some ways, raises questions about uh, all the things that Henry did um, in terms of the Shanghai communique and the One China policy. And so um, while, in fact, um, what President Clinton was saying was that people had been uh, arrested or mowed down by tanks, which did not deal with our values. And I think that Americans always have to state, uh, and I always did, whenever I met with the Chinese, was to explain uh, our human rights policies and um, issues to do with Tibet, um, which is a little different than kind of questioning or seeming I mean, I have no idea what happened. I only know what I read. Um, but basically questioning the issue of what our relationship with Taiwan is. And the question is, as part of President um, Carter's normalization, we did have the Taiwan Relations Act. That was part of the agreement. Uh, but the question is, what was the intent of um, the phone call? Dr. Kissinger, did, did President-elect Trump ask you to go to China? No, I was... Uh, did, you have, did, did he ask you to deliver a message to the Chinese? Well, I... Uh, not in this sense. I was, of course, aware of some of his thinking, and he knew that I was going but I was not going as a presidential emissary. I was going on a trip that I had planned many months earlier. Were you surprised that he accepted a call from Tsai Ing-wen? Do you think that is in the interests of sound and productive U.S.-China relations? Uh, I was one of the drafters of the Shanghai communique. And so there are clear premises of that communique and, and clear obligations. And I will not separate my views from the Shanghai communique and from the established procedure. I think also that at this moment I've been very impressed by the calm reaction of the Chinese leadership, which suggests that a determination to see whether a calm dialogue can be can be developed. Uh, but with, there's no question that 
the policy uh, of opening to China has been based on the premise of a one-China policy. Does this accepting a call when he's not yet president? I would argue that what our prohibition is is about official contact. And since he is president-elect and not yet president, that actually is not an official contact. No? Well, uh, that is a good way to describe the, the subject. That, that's, since I look to avoid confrontation, that's the way I, 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 I describe it. You know, I, I do recall running into a, uh, uh, I believe it was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in Taipei, and I know the, because I worked in the State Department, I know the prohibitions, and I say, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be here. And he said, I've been named, but I haven't taken office yet, so I'm not official. So it was, you know, it, there is precedent for that kind of contact. But what do you think, after that, that turmoil, um, the president-elect sent out a tweet after he was criticized, and I had to write it down to have it precise. Did China ask us if it was okay to devalue their currency, making it hard for our companies to compete, heavily tax our products going into their country, country, the U.S. doesn't tax them, or to build massive military complex in the middle of the South China Sea? I don't think so, exclamation point, close quote. Is that, what does that mean for the U.S.-China relationship? I think it's madly to <laughs> You didn't expect to get easy questions from me. Look, look, it's perfectly obvious uh, what my views are on these subjects. I think it's also not desirable that at the beginning of a new administration that it's finding its way that I go into every one of these issues. Uh, uh, I believe in a one-China policy. I believe it has to be preserved uh, I believe that our dialogue should be calm and focused on long-term objectives. Uh, but I don't think at this point it is important for me to second-guess every move that may have been made. Um, well, let me say I, I do think it's a statement of fact that the most important relationship we have is with China. Um, and it's, and we all, diplomatically speaking, when it's complicated, you say it's multifaceted. So it's definitely multifaceted. Um, I think that what we have seen is through a variety of administrations, beginning with uh, President Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger, we have developed a way of talking to each other. Um, and it is very uh, well kind of uh, uh, patterned, and there are certain ways uh, it takes diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy is, uh, by virtue of the way you talk about it, you always have to put yourself into the other person's shoes. It is not negotiating for a hotel. And I think that the point is how to develop the right parlance here. 
And I know that it takes a while to kind of sort it out. But in the meantime, what I have found, and I have traveled abroad a lot since the election, is trying to explain to anybody, Chinese, or I went to, I was born in Czechoslovakia, so I went to Prague right away, just say, calm, you know, and I agree with Henry, they are learning. But the bottom line is, tweeting has not actually been a foreign policy tool uh, before. But it didn't used to be an election tool no. either. Well, I, but I do think that one of the big questions is how technology is used these days. But I do think also that the number of issues that we have with the Chinese, whether they are through the strategic and economic talks or military to military talks, uh, uh, really depend on, on relationships and having all the information. And I think, uh, I, let me just say, the transition period is both too short and too long. I have been transitioned into and I have done the transitioning. The latter is more fun. But the bottom line is it's very complicated period where people in this country are talking to each other and somehow forget that foreigners are listening to them or hear what, what they're saying. And I hope, I really hope that my good friend Henry Kissinger has a very strong influence on President-elect Trump. That is shared. Well, let's go from one. Me, <laughs> let's go. You're the only hope. <laughs> well, let's go from one sensitive issue to another sensitive issue. The um, Secretary Albright, you were one of the, in fact, I guess to my knowledge, the only senior American uh, to visit North Korea. Um, you met with then uh, Kim Il Sung, father of Kim Jong Un. Um, you almost arranged for President Clinton to visit North Korea at the very, after the election prior to the, the inauguration. Um, President-elect Trump is also talking about having discussions directly with Kim Jong-un. What lessons from your visit to Korea, you're dealing with them really probably more than any American official in decades to tell you about his idea. Well, let me just say it was interesting because we had had a lot of talks um, with the North Koreans throughout the um, Clinton administration. There were a lot of breakdowns of them, uh, a lot of issues that came up at the United Nations. We'd had the agreed framework with them number of different ways, and then President Clinton had asked us to do her all, because things weren't moving in any way, to do a complete review of Korean policy, and he asked former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry to do a review. And then uh, we had some meetings with the North Koreans and explained this is fork in the road time. You either were going to negotiate on some of the issues of missile limits, um, or we are actually going to take some action here, and they chose the negotiation. What happened was that Vice Marshal Cho, the number two man in North Korea, came to the United States and invited President Clinton to go to North Korea. And President Clinton, we were in the Oval Office, said, well, I might come at some point, but First Secretary Albright has to go. The truth is, we knew very little about Kim Jong-il. I had to talk to Kim Dae-jung uh, to see, because he and the Sunshine Policy, he'd spent some time uh, with him. 
Uh, our intelligence said that, he, that Kim Jong-il was crazy and a pervert. He was not crazy. Uh, and uh, so, um, and when I got there, uh, they put me in a guest house. And because we didn't have any embassy there, we had no idea what was going to happen. I first got instructions that I had to go see a Zimbabwe father, Kim Il-sung. And the very, it's very hard, actually, when you are trying to pay respect to somebody, not to bow too low because that's too respectful and the press will be furious, and not to kind of pay no respect. So once I had agreed to do that, I went back to the guest house, um, and all of a sudden I get a message that the dear leader would see me. And so we, in fact, we had a meeting, a press conference, um, and it was something out of the 50s, really. Um, and I'm standing there next to him, and I see that we're the same height. And I knew that I had on high heels, and then I looked over, and so did he. Uh, <laughs> and his hair was a lot poofier than mine. Uh, but let me say this. We had pretty amazing talks in terms of arranging for missile limits, Kim Jong-il said we could keep our forces in South Korea, uh, and there were a number of different agreements made. And again, it was one of those strange periods. Um, if uh, I hold no brief for the North Koreans, but the bottom line is many Americans were confused about the election of 2000. He certainly was. Uh, and then when I came back, I briefed Colin Powell about what we had done. He was very interested in what we had done. Then the Washington Post had a headline, Powell to continue Clinton policies. He was hauled into the Oval Office and told no way. So I do think here the North Koreans had reason to be confused. Um, by the way, Dennis Rodman and all the basketball stuff is my fault because there was one other thing we knew about Kim Jong-il. He liked yeah. basketball and Michael Jordan. And I brought him an autographed basketball, which they put in their holy of holies. Um, but the bottom line is, I do think that we need to um, either get some version of the six-party talks. We need to talk to them. Um, I do think that is a very important part and decide that having a nuclear North Korea is dangerous for the Chinese. We have to do it with the Chinese. They need to understand that they don't want a nuclear-armed North Korea either. And so I think that within some kind of a multilateral context, it's important for us to talk. But what President-elect Trump seems to be suggesting is a one-on-one -on -one with Kim Jong-un. Well, if it should come to that, it has to be really, really well prepared. And the bottom line is we don't know enough about Kim Jong-un. And, um, and um, the question is, who does the one-on-one -on -one, um, and how they understand each other? But at some point, we have to talk to them. Uh, the situation with Iran is quite, I mean, similar but different. There certainly were a lot of talks that took place. Do we know if, if in President Obama's conversation with President-elect Trump that there's been reference to a real threat and that threat was North Korea? Well, we were told that. I mean, yeah, so that, that that was something that... that Secretary Kirsten, what would you, if, if President-elect Trump asked you, should he meet directly with, with President Kim? But let me explain my, my general view of the situation. Uh, 
Korea has played a major role in Sino-American relations. It got us into a war in 1950 that neither side really wanted uh, because when uh, the North Koreans attacked South Korea, they thought it would be an easy victory. And then when the United States came to the assistance of South Korea and moved north, China felt itself compelled for its own historic reasons to, to intervene. So you cannot separate North Korea from Sino-American relations in general. Secondly, uh, the basic objective for the immediate future has to be to remove nuclear weapons from North Korea. There is no maneuvering that can make nuclear weapons in North Korea tolerable because China will feel threatened, Japan will, every country in the region will feel threatened, and they're working on weapons that can reach the United States, and they have shown a total disregard for any proliferation. Uh, now, of course, you could say if North Korea is prepared to give up nuclear weapons and wants to exist as a separate state, it is not for the United States to question its existence beyond the point where they threaten us. But the likelihood is, in my opinion, that if North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons, it will be the regime will disintegrate. It's the only thing that they have achieved in their history as a national effort that is a demonstrable success. So therefore, <clears throat> it raises the question of what happens if North Korea disintegrates, which incidentally is a question in any event because a regime so strange can maintain itself by brute force for some time. But sooner or later, something may happen there that raises the issue of its survival. And in my opinion, if that issue of survival arises into an unprepared international community in which there have not been discussions of what to do in such a contingency, it has the possibility of a very dangerous escalation. So uh, I think it is important for the United States and China to come to some understanding, not just about removing the nuclear weapons, but about the evolution of Korea after that. And that, in turn, will involve other countries uh, in a continuing and subsequent negotiation. So in this sense, Korea is a threat in the military sense, but it is also a threat in the long-term uh, sense 
many invasions of China have come through Korea. China will never be indifferent to the evolution of uh, Korea. But nor will Japan be. And of course, South Korea has a, uh, has, has a huge interest. So it is very important to call attention to the, to the need of building uh, Korea into an international framework. Now, who should negotiate with whom and at what stage? I think it is too premature in this administration to discuss this in a realistic, in, in a realistic fashion. And one has to distinguish between general statements and short-term uh, uh, short uh, uh, policy uh, statements. And uh, it is not likely that any, uh, that there can be one dramatic movement that uh, uh, negotiation that takes care of this. But first, the administration has to be organized and its senior people have to be given a chance to consider that rather than to go into every tactical statement that may be made. I, I do think that people need to be aware of how these kinds of talks happen in the first place. Henry just mentioned all the the stakeholders in this that have some interest in it. What does happen is there are multilateral meetings where various people sit six party talks at a table, but then there are breakouts from it where people uh, can have pull-asides and have some beginning of some bilateral discussion. I don't think you begin, uh, I fully agree with, with now saying, you know, first let's get the leaders together because it has to come in this context of what the region is like. The thing that has happened is the United States has two allies, South Korea and Japan, that don't exactly love each other. Um, and we have responsibilities there. The, the region keeps shifting some of the things that have happened in the Philippines recently. A number of different things is going to require a way of us having these discussions with the Chinese within that larger context. And I personally think that there need to be some kind of multilateral talks that then, as happened when we were in office, that then evolve into something, not just flat out, you know, get them together because the preparation for this is going to be huge. But I do think it is one of the biggest threats out there for exactly the reasons that you've got somebody, we don't know who he is, and he does have scientists and people that know how to develop this stuff. You made reference to the changing kind of geopolitical landscape, especially the Philippines. Let's talk a bit about the South China Seas, which has certainly been an irritant in the US-China relationship, and, and um, President-elect Trump referred to it in his tweet uh, Chinese building these huge military establishments in the middle of the ocean. Um, how do we fix it? What do you suggest to the president-elect that we do? And what do you suggest to President Xi that he does? 
Well, I, I think we have an interest in having freedom of navigation. Um, and by the way, I get so tired when people say, you know, what are we doing in the Pacific? We, the United States, well, I always say we're not monogamous. We're both a, an Atlantic and a Pacific power. Um, and we belong in the Pacific, and we have very great interests there. And navigation uh, and trade routes are very important. I think um, that we have not gotten involved in the question of sovereignty, but I do think that we are concerned about the navigational aspects and the right to fly, and those things uh, have to be worked out. The, the uh, Chinese can't unilaterally decide. And the Philippines, it's a, again, leadership does make a difference. Uh, what had happened was that the international court had um, ruled on this, and then the new president of the Philippines has somehow um, changed his mind. But the bottom line is there is a way to do that. The problem is that the United States is not a signatory of the um, Law of the Sea Treaty, which puts us in a somewhat weaker position arguing for some of the rules that the international system has put down. But we depend on freedom of navigation, and we have to insist on it. Chinese I think we are a signatory, we, but we, we didn't ratify it. We have not ratified it. We didn't yeah. ratify yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, Secretary Kissinger, any suggestions on the South China Sea? I mean, the Chinese would say, we believe in freedom of navigation. In fact, the, the greatest loser if freedom of navigation in the South China Seas was impeded would be China, because more of their trade goes through there than ours. This is an example of the different way, uh, culturally, the two countries look at it. The idea of the dotted line and of the Chinese claim uh, up to the dotted line, this was made by some emperor 300 years ago. And uh, when the idea of freedom of navigation and so forth was not developed, it has been maintained by every Chinese government. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek had the same view. And in fact, the uh, current authorities in Taiwan have the same view about the significance of this. On the other hand, uh, the United States position on freedom of disease has been developed over a, uh, over a long uh, period uh, of time. And uh, so if one tries to settle this in absolute terms, it will probably be a very protracted and difficult uh, uh, issue. On the other hand, we have experience in the Shanghai communique and in the evolution of the various uh, agreements that were made between the United States and China following the Shanghai communique by administrations of both parties. How the two sides can find a way of living with disagreements on the nature of the issue and postponing the uh, final solution in a way that is tolerable to both sides. 
And I think that is the approach that should be sought now. Interesting. The economic architecture, you know, the, the economic architecture of the Pacific was the Obama administration was sought to recraft it through the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that is now, that died as a result of the Congress and will not wanting to pass it. And President-elect Trump has said on day one he will withdraw uh, American signature from it. Um, what do you, th what is the economic architecture of the region going to look like and what should it, from an American perspective, be crafted to look like? In other words, all right, we, we've decided, countries decided TPP is not what we want. Well, what should we be suggesting to President-elect Trump? I think there's a whole question about the architecture, not just economic, but the architecture of the region. I am so old that when I was in college, we talked about CETO the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Um, and there's always this kind of some attempt to have some kind of architecture. I think from a perspective of national security, TPP was offering that in many ways of 12 countries uh, coming together. Part of the problem though, it didn't deal with the economic situation um, of the workers. And so I can see um, what the problem is. I do think um, the United States made a mistake by not being for the um, Asian for the bank that the Chinese were setting up. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a very uh, important, and it would have made a difference if we had been uh, enthusiastic about it instead of kind of standing aside. Um, I do think that we need to see what. By the way, I, I think a point to add to what Henry was talking about culture. In my I've gone to China a lot, and more and more they are, um, with Xi Jinping talking about the fact that they have not been respected properly internationally, and kind of back to various grievances. And now with the One Belt, One Road idea, it's a very large, expansive uh, program that, that they're interested in. And so the question is how they can go about their economic infrastructure without, in fact, having it be contradictory to what we might want to see in the region. Very interesting, the Chinese now are saying they have to get their um, labor is too expensive. They send their stuff to other countries. Um, they are no longer, even though they say they are, the largest developing country. And so I think there needs to be a better way of trying to find a structure that may not be TPP, but is based on the concept. Because what's happening now, the Chinese are taking over what we have kind of left on the table. And I think that that is gonna cause issues for the new administration. So you think we'll see this regional comprehensive economic partnership that China runs it. Is, is creating yeah. as it was kind of a TPP light yeah. would be my description of it. It doesn't yeah. really have the protections that the TPP or the investment protections. It's more a tariff agreement. Well, we have, a number of American leaders have said that America has vital interests in Asia and that we are, in a way, an Asian power. So, and actually, uh, President Xi has 
accepted that in a number of its uh, of its statements. So, the strategic purpose of TPP or of something like TPP is to symbolize and formalize some kind of structural relationship between the United States and those Asian countries that want to have this relationship. And it cannot be in anybody's interest, either China or the United States, to see the world break up into regional groupings in which the regional groupings then conduct themselves like national states towards each other with much even greater consequences. So the basic concept of TPP was important, whether one, whether the specific conditions met everybody's uh, concerns. I, as a non-economist, have never really looked at, but as a concept, I think it was important. Investment. The National Committee spends an, a, a lot of time looking at Chinese investment in the United States and U.S. investment in China. And even though trade is controversial, I think there is a consensus that investment is basically good, that it's job creating, that I think if President-elect Trump were sitting here, he'd say, yeah, investment creates jobs. And I think President Xi would say, yeah, foreign investment creates jobs. Do you think it is a reasonable theory to come up with that President-elect Trump will conclude what President Obama could not conclude, which is the bilateral investment treaty, that it will look to a business person as a low-hanging fruit and job-creating, and that it would be a way to kind of um, lay a constructive foundation at the beginning of an administration? Because the, in the Obama, they're this close to getting it done, but they couldn't get it done. Is that something you think that may be in the cards? Well, not if that tweet you read uh, is what he thinks. Uh, because there would have to be a certain amount of adjustments on tariffs and a number of different ways of looking at it. Um, and the question is whether in a negotiation on a, on a bilateral treaty... Bilateral investment treaty. A bilateral... So not not just deal with no, tariffs, just bit. open sectors. So China will open more sectors to U.S. investment, and the U.S. will agree not to discriminate against China, but we don't anyhow. So the U.S. doesn't give up very much in this. But I think there is a question how uh, there is a, a kind of... Uh, overlay of having said certain things about the way Chinese are treated. I think we, I happen to think it's a good idea for the, for the Chinese to invest in the U.S. There are an awful lot of infrastructure things that need to be done um, and that don't run into the CFIUS problem and are worth doing. I think it's also worth Americans investing in China. The question is whether um, the atmosphere that has been created whether if, in fact, one could go forward with a bit at, at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Kissinger, anything on that? I, uh, 
I just don't think it's useful for me to go into what should be an immediate, an immediate negotiation, particularly in the economic field, which uh, where Secretary of Treasury Bill Simon, when we were both colleagues, said about me that my knowledge of economics was an argument against universal suffrage. <laughs> We've talked about, we were talking about the economic infrastructure. Let's talk about the security infrastructure, that there's been discussion of kind of reevaluating um, U.S. bases in Japan and in South Korea, um, restructuring how they're paid for. What kind of is that going to do to the kind of existing security architecture? Or does the architecture need to be changed because it's overly reliant on kind of Cold War thinking anyhow? Well, let me just say, I teach um, at Georgetown, and I teach a course, I say, foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So the question is, what are the tools that we have? And so my course is called the National Security Toolbox. One of the tools is obviously the military tool, which is not just uh, the fighting forces and the number of aircraft carriers, but in fact the bases uh, and how they are used, uh, who's on them, uh, how they really uh, enable us to have uh, a presence in countries. Um, I do think that um, some of the things that President-elect Trump has said generally about what our allies have to pay or not pay, um, whether it's NATO or in, in Asia, I think we do need to have a more cooperative approach to it, but we want those bases there. Um, and we consider them important. Uh, and I, I do think that blackmailing allies into things is not a great idea. Um, and that we really, we know what our national interests are in Asia. Um, and um, it's kind of a, a two-way street. They need us, we need them. But I think people need to think of bases as part of our toolbox to some extent. By the way, what I find interesting, there was a story in the papers today about the fact that Xi Jinping has now said that the Chinese need a smaller and more effective military. So they are also having questions in terms of how the money is spent generally, how do they use the tool, um, because we all have the same toolbox. An alliance always has a particular assumption about the nature of security that's inherent in an alliance system. So it's inevitable that as time goes on that there are periodic reconsiderations of what the proper balance is within an alliance and also what the proper relationship is of the alliance to countries that are not part of the alliance. So I consider it natural that such discussions should take place and one should, one will have to evaluate it 
in terms of the nature of the uh, uh, of the assessments that are made. What should not happen is that one ally makes his role conditional on, on the other countries. Uh, that is something that uh, it's, it's a very large resort. But I tell you, we are here in a very complicated situation. We were, when, we, when I agreed to this, we were going to discuss the basic relationship between China and the United States. My position on that is firm, fully explained in many articles including a long interview in The Atlantic. It's now become a discussion of specific statements that are being made. And uh, that, that's a much more, I just don't want to participate in that part uh, of the discussion. I'm perfectly willing to repeat and, and strengthen I believe that the United States and China must have a close and friendly relationship, that the peace of the world depends on the ability to do this, and that many principles have been established to achieve this. Uh, and it happens to be that this date was set at a moment when nobody <laughs> knew the outcome. <laughs> nobody predicted what was going to be going on. And we would on. have to discuss uh, specific conditions. I would think normally Madeleine and I agree on the essence of these issues. Whether we agree on every tactical point, it's not so important. Let me just say, we definitely do agree uh, on the overall issue, and nobody has done more for U.S.-China relationships than Henry Kissinger. And by the way, when um, Xi Jinping was still deputy premier, he, vice premier, he had come over, we had a meeting um, with all the former people, uh, and he was explaining how he felt about the United States and that he'd spent time here and wanted to know what we had learned over the 35 years uh, and what our relationship was. So then, as we're leaving, uh, I said to one of the others, being in a meeting with Henry Kissinger's with the Chinese is like being with a demigod. And that other person said, leave out the demi. Uh, uh, so, uh, but I do agree. I do think the problem that we have, and I, I don't blame Henry for not wanting to comment on this. I am, however, free. Um, is that the things that have been said can't totally be erased, um, which is something that I said initially, is that we forget how much foreign countries listen to what we are saying. And when it looks as though there's going to be, and I underline the looks as though, because we don't know, that there are going to be some quite different approaches to things. When he talked about a nuclearized um, Japan or various other aspects. I think we have to understand what the effect of it is, whether you can just blot it out from the consciousness of the people that we're dealing with. 
I do think that we have to be concerned about the um, importance of the U.S.-Chinese relationship. I think it is absolutely essential, uh, and there are so many aspects to it, so I hope very much that there is a learning process here, but how you erase what's been said, I think, if I were going on the other side into a discussion, I might say, what exactly did you mean by that? Um, so I think that it's hard not to consider it, but I accept no, definitely what I understand. What I, understand. I, yeah. I haven't was... been asked to go to the Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> One of the bright shining moments in, in U.S.-China relations was the, the um, agreement between President Obama and President Xi on climate change. That really was kind of the view of many in the community was that this was an example of America and China jointly leading the world. And that the myriad of kind of global issues, if the United States and China could cooperate on them, we would have a chance of solving them. If we don't cooperate, then we're doomed to failure. And climate change was kind of you know, the Obama administration did a great job of, of getting that and ultimately signing the, the Paris Agreement. Secretary, well, Robert, what should say, we do going forward? Well, let me say how important, because during the Clinton administration, we tried to deal with this with the Kyoto Protocol, and one of the whole issues was that it was unfair that developed countries had created the whole environmental mess, and then the developing countries... Uh, we're going to suffer about it. And we talked to the Chinese a lot about leapfrogging with new technologies, and yet that continued to be an issue. I do think that what has been done on climate change is remarkable, um, and I think that um, it is, it's a, the Paris Agreement is quite different in terms of the various um, requirements of it, but the Chinese, the fact that the um, uh, President Xi Jinping and President Obama were able to do this, I think is remarkable. I think it would be most unfortunate if it were not followed up. Um, there's a, a, an article going around today that Vice President Gore, who is Mr. Climate Change, has had a meeting with Ivanka uh, because that is apparently the thing that she is interested in. I think that's great. And I do hope that there is progress on climate change and that those people who think the earth is flat and don't believe in climate change, um, actually are not the ones that influence uh, President-elect Trump and that he really continues with it. This doesn't relate to recent news. So the, um, after both of you served, the, the strategic and economic dialogue was created as a mechanism to kind of strengthen U.S.-China relations, to build at various different you know, ministries and agencies in the United States, to have many cabinet members go and many ministers from China come. Is this, from your perspective, is this an effective mechanism? Should it be continued? To have, an, to have a dialogue on these issues is very important. The, the evolution of these institutions is that they usually begin with a group that is small enough to have a, 
reasonable time to have an effective dialogue. And then it gradually expands. And then increasingly, the uh, outcome of it is influenced by the communique. And so they begin working on the communique before they even meet. So that there is, I would say, there's a critical size of membership that permits an effective dialogue. So, for example, the, what is now the G8 started as a, because I was president, that was actually started as a G5, and there were only three people permitted on each side in the room. Now it is a very large group. It still is useful because it permits side dialogues, it permits focusing on issues. So what I think is needed is one to keep the basic idea of the dialogue going and then periodically examine whether the size of it needs some trimming or whether it is kept as a symbolic with some subgroups, but the concept is useful and should be continued. I think it should be continued for a number of reasons. One is that we know in our government and also in other governments, things are not just contained in one box. So the, the strategic and economic um, things go together, the military. The other part is we have a tendency um, always to talk about how the leaders of a country get along. The bottom line is that it, it's nice to have that personal relationship, but the there has to be carried out by bureaucracies in, in both the countries and the institutions. And so this is a way for some of the other people within the institutional structure to get to know each other, and then smaller groups to do drafting or whatever. But it does provide, I think it's a useful mechanism. We do it with some other countries in terms of having big meetings of getting various... Uh, ministries together, and I do think the important part here is how lower-level officials begin to work together under the leadership of the leaders. So I do think, I hope it continues. We have an illustrious audience here, so let me open the, uh, open the floor to questions. Um, so right here in the, in the front. And please identify yourself and keep the questions short. Uh, I have a question for Secretary Mandolin. And, Identify yourself. Uh, I'm a, actually, I'm a partner of a listed company in Shanghai. I currently car, uh, conduct uh, research at Columbia University. And uh, Secretary Mandolin, you said uh, don't pay attention to the, what the candidates said, but something happened after the, ele the election day. Uh, such as the, the Twitter post, uh, the phone call from Taiwan, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, to be honest, uh, for the Chinese business people, what uh, they concern the most uh, are the uh, things such as the RMB, the, uh, the RMB, the export to America. So, in your view, 
uh, how will the political issues uh, influence on the economic relationship between China and uh, America? Thank you. Yeah. I, I do have to say, um, I think campaigns are one thing, but once the person has been elected, it does, um, as I said, it, it does make you question where this is going. I do think that it is important for um, President-elect Trump and his people to know the reaction that it has created. I think that what will be important are the other people that he chooses uh, in, in the government and how they will look at it. Um, I, th I have to tell you that at this moment, it is unclear. It is, to me, unclear. Uh, but the most important thing, I think, now is for everybody to stay calm uh, and not to... Uh, I believe that the relationship, as I've said now and so has Dr. Kissinger, is the U.S.-Chinese relationship, whether it's economic, military, security, is the most important relationship. And therefore, to make decisions based on uh, a lack of information uh, is very dangerous. And so I would uh, hope that um, the um, Beijing is not overly insulted by what was said uh, or that people are thinking that this is the policy. We don't know what the policy is yet. So that is my uh, suggestion. Um, let's see. Right here? Sorry. Some people say it might be uh, Mr. Trump's intentional move to test China's bottom line. So China's calm reaction might be interpreted as weakness and lead to even more provocation and uh, uh, bullying. So my question is, how would you comment on that? Thank you. Look, I have tried to explain to this group. Uh, I have now seen 10 American administrations and, I've, and I believe that one of the big challenges to America has been the division of our country on many of these foreign policy issues. So I do not think it is desirable that at the beginning of a newly elected administration. We now elaborate all the points that can be made that about which we, we can be uh, divided. I've just spent three days in China and I believe that it is possible to have a creative relationship between our two countries. And really, it should, you shouldn't look for tricky questions to make me say something that uh, it is clear I don't have any intention of saying and that it's contrary uh, to my view of the, of, the, of the current necessities. And so uh, I believe what I have said. There are Americans who have spent 40 years on this problem who have the same view. And, and we will 
make our views known. And uh, I think it is important to permit an opportunity for this concept to be developed. If it doesn't develop, then we all have to make our decisions on where to stand. But as far as the U.S.-China relationship is concerned, I, am, I believe that there are positive prospects. I believe they should be pursued. I have hope that they will be pursued. And therefore, you, ladies and gentlemen here, as far as you take my view seriously, you should, uh, you should focus on that and not see what points we can find that give us concern. Uh, it's when the state was picked, it was its part, it wasn't considered to be in such a particular period. There are reasons for concern, there are reasons for hope, and one should concentrate on those. And that's my fundamental point, which cannot be massaged by other questions. Uh, let me go. I've call, only called on Chinese. Let me call on a non-Chinese back over there. Yeah. Hi, my name is Daniel Burke, and I work with the American economist Lyndon LaRouche. My question is for Dr. Kissinger. Um, Mr. LaRouche has proposed that he's very strong in agreeing with you that U.S. and China must cooperate. And he's emphatic that the U.S. and China could cooperate on the one belt, one road policy. That this would be a clear way to rebuild the United States collapsing economy. Further, he said that we could work together on space science and on the development of thermonuclear fusion. And I wonder if you have any comments. I have never thought of Lyndon LaRouche in this particular context. But uh, let me just say I do think that there are ways that we can cooperate. Um, I think one of the issues out there now also is cyber um, and various problems that are there and various possibilities. And the question is how our two great countries can in fact cooperate in a way that requires a certain amount of trust. Um, so I, I hope very much that there is some pursuit of cooperation in a number of different fields. But I don't think we can underestimate what some of the difficulties are in that kind of cooperation. I think the one road, one belt concept is an important idea. And I think that China and the United States can and should find a way of, uh, of talking about it. It's one of the issues in which cooperation probably is possible. And uh, so, well, I think perhaps 
my most useful contribution <laughs> is to last, stop. Last question, Graham. Last question right here. Thank you very much. I'm Graham Majorhart from American Express. Um, now we're celebrating 50 years of the National Committee. And I'm wondering, uh, what do you think the top three or five things we should be looking to celebrate at the 70 year reunion? 70 years. So 20 years from now. 20 years from now. Okay. That's a very good question. Well, first of all, that many of our students learn to speak Chinese, that we have more and more educational exchanges, um, that um, we understand each other's history and culture, um, and that our work internationally is actually not in, co in competition, but in cooperation in terms of, to pick up on the one belt, one road, in terms of um, infrastructure, which brings people together, um, ways of um, understanding uh, how dependent we are on changes in the climate and each other, uh, and that we do, in fact, um, drop the fact that we are enemies when we actually have to, to work together. So um, neither of us will be here. Uh, but um, I, I do think that we need to look forward to that kind of a relationship. What yeah. was the precise question? 20 years from now, what could we celebrate in the U.S.-China relationship? <coughs> I think 20 years from now, we will either celebrate a creative cooperation or a degree of tension, which will be spread all over uh, the world by forcing every country to make a choice, which would lead to confrontation. So I think our obligation is to expect that the cooperative relationship about which both sides are talking and both sides have proclaimed in administrations of both parties will continue. And that is what I expect. It's a perfect note to close on, but let me just, before we close, let me ask Secretary Albright about those. She's famous for her pins, as we all know. So what, what so, are these? These are monkey pins. It's the year of the monkey, you know. And I've already bought my rooster for next year. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank Secretary Kissinger and Secretary Albright for, for giving so generously of their time.